Welcome back to the LSCC podcast. Let's get into our series, Ezra and Nehemiah. Good morning. Welcome. Welcome. Good morning and welcome to those that are joining us online or maybe later in the week. Um, Last week I began uh, what was the first of three messages as we close out our long-term study of Ezra and Nehemiah. And uh, this first two weeks is called The Highs and Lows of Leadership. We touched a little bit of chapter 12 at the end last week and then uh, chapter 13. And we're going to finish that today. But before we get into the passage and pick up where we left off, I want to set this up a little bit. The last few weeks there's been uh, some new folks come in and it probably will be a little bit of an odd part to jump in at the end of a long-term study of an Old Testament book to boot. So I just want to make sure that you guys are grounded as, as much as you can um, as we pick up in chapter 13. Um, these books, Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, they're, they're in the Old Testament, and, and along with Malachi, they, they represent what we might call sort of the last word uh, between our Old Testament and our New Testament, where the events of the New Testament uh, pick up. Uh, Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah find themselves at the end of a long line of Jews that had had an up-and-down relationship with their God, Yahweh. Now, these ups and downs weren't because of God's interaction with the people. Uh, Instead, it was because of uh, the the people and and their actions and uh, not keeping with the law, keeping with the covenant. Um, In one way or another, they just couldn't stay out of their own way. Uh, With a few exceptions, a few bright spots uh, along the way, Uh, They couldn't remain in God's uh, good graces and God's uh, blessings, instead falling into chaos and just various calamities uh, time after time. And what happened was that eventually led Yahweh to exiling his people from the chosen land that he had given them centuries before, uh, forcing them to live uh, among various peoples of the land, uh, these books tell us, under their control, under their religious practices, and so on. But along with the exile, God promised uh, that he would bring back a remnant of the people, which is where the book of Ezra and then later Nehemiah uh, picks up the story. You see on our uh, slide here the, the three words, return, rebuild, and restore. And those are, are very purpose, uh, purposeful in, in our usage of those. See, over the course of these the two books, the people not only physically returned to the holy city of Jerusalem from Persia and surrounding uh, lands, uh, but they also returned to the word of God, uh, what they called the law, and, and that was their spiritual foundation. So returning uh, to the roots of that. And not only did they physically rebuild the altar, temple, and walls, uh, which had been destroyed as part of that exile, but they rebuilt their lives around God's promises, uh, provision, and protection. And finally, albeit much smaller, they not only restored the nation of Israel uh, as a presence in the region, but they restored and uh, committed to the covenant God had made with them so long ago. Now that very brief intro might make it sound like everything was sort of easy peasy skate right on through, and then a few hundred years go by and we get in the New Testament. But there was a lot of resistance and turmoil uh, during both of these books, from within their their own camp and also uh, from the outside. 
Uh, chapter 13 comes along on, on the heels of this grand celebration of all of this rebuilding, the physical rebuilding and the rebuilding of the, ta- uh, of the people. But rather than sort of finishing with this storybook ending, I called it the Disney ending last week, uh, that we might anticipate as we reach the end of chapter 12, um, that's not what happens. Chapter 13 is kind of ugly, and it ends on a bit of a downer. Um, because they're still plagued by the issues that their ancestors had been struggling with for all of those years before. And that's where we picked up the story last week. Again, I divided uh, this uh, into two weeks, talking about the highs and the lows of leadership. And this is what we covered last week in a nutshell. First, that the work continues in the midst of celebration. Uh, Simply put, when the people reached their goals of the the rebuilding and and, and the returning and the restoring, they could have just stopped. And oftentimes we find ourselves there when we reach a goal or a milestone in our lives that we sort of put it in park or we coast. And we see at the end of chapter 12 that that's just not the case with the people. They keep pursuing God. They keep pursuing uh, God's law and uh, God's word. So they press on. Paul calls that pressing on towards the goal. The second thing we see as we enter chapter 13 is that God's word is leading the way and that the people are responding. So they've made a firm commitment to restoring God's word as their foundation, the law, what we would call the first uh, five books of our Old Testament. And that's what their foundation was. That's what their anchor point was. And third, as chapter 13 plays out, we we see Nehemiah take immediate corrective action. He's not passive. He doesn't shirk his responsibilities. He knows the law. And also, as governor, it's his responsibility to hold the people accountable. And as a aside for this first point, I just want to say two things that, that pastors love that are both connected to this last point here. First, while I will certainly take any compliment that's given. Um, good job or, or, or good message is great, but what we love to hear is something more specific. Like when you said fill in the blank about it was convicting, or last week when you said I did the following the next week. And that brings me to the second thing that we love. We love it when someone takes an application point does it, and then tells us about it. And I have an, uh, an, an example from just this last week. Here's an email that came in. It says this, The reflection of Corey's head on the glass table distracted me for the entire duration of this week's Level Up video. <laughs> Other than that, it was real good. And the email address is nothanks at nothanks.com, so one of those anonymizers. So taking immediate corrective action, that's fantastic. And I I wish somebody had kept their name on it because I'd probably slide a gift card your way or something. So um, thanks for taking an application point and driving it home the, the very next week. So... Then we shifted to the lows. 
The first thing we talked about is who we appoint and what we leave behind is mission critical. And we'll see that play out a little bit in a couple of these examples that we'll go through as we work through chapter 13. Uh, Nehemiah didn't do the greatest job of appointing leaders. Uh, he was back in Jerusalem for 12 years, and then he left for some time, putting other people uh, in, in, in control, in leadership. And then and we see these different things play out as chapter 13 works its way through where the appointed leaders didn't do a very good job. And at some level, Nehemiah t needs to take ownership of that as he was the one who appointed them. So who we appoint and what we leave behind is mission critical. And then as we got into the first corrective action that Nehemiah took, uh, we, we talked about not being faithful in the responsibilities that, that God has given us. And uh, as we read through, it'll be the, the first chunk that we read through, verses 4 through 9. Uh, we studied that last week, but basically they let in a wolf into the sheep. And he takes advantage of the temple, he takes advantage of the high priest, and this area that should be used for storage to support the church workers and the workers of the temple, out what would be modern-day church workers for us, is given over to this guy who uses it for his own good. So meanwhile, the, 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 the tithes and the offerings that are supposed to be collected and disseminated among the workers um, aren't collected, thus aren't given out. The church workers leave, which we'll read, and, and calamity follows. And so not being faithful in the responsibilities that God has given us uh, that's where we uh, ended there. Um, there was a few little takeaway points. I just want to pull out a couple before we read the passage. Oh, and these we'll see even as we work through here. One was that compromising relationships usually lead to more compromise. And so we saw the high priest last week have a compromising relationship, which then impacted more people impacted uh, the temple workers. One other thing that I would mention is that personal concerns and relationships must not supersede one's obedience uh, to God's word. Again, we see this where this personal relationship uh, between Eliashib and uh, Tobiah took precedence over what he rightly knew was to be the right way of working uh, in and around the temple. And so with all of that as a setting uh, for today's passage, let's read through uh, the rest of Nehemiah 13 together, and let's honor God and his holy word by, by standing, if you're able, as we read through. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, we'll find that uh, at the beginning, or beginning on page 671, and it will also be on the screen here for you. So Nehemiah chapter 13, beginning in verse 4. And now prior to this, Eliashib the priest, and this is what we covered last week, uh, but it goes in connection with these other uh, corrections that, that Nehemiah needs to take. Eliashib the priest, who was put in charge over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him, where formerly they put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain. Also, new wine and oil commanded for the Levites and singers and the gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests, so the church workers. 
But during all this time, I was not in Jerusalem, this is Nehemiah, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. And after some time, however, I asked to leave from the king. And we don't have a clear indication on how long that was. And I came to Jerusalem and discerned the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a chamber for him in the courts of the house of God. It was very evil to me, so I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the chamber. And then I said the word, and they cleansed the chambers, and I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. And here's what we'll focus the rest of today on these next few sections. Verse 10, I also came to know that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his own field. And so I contended against the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And then I gathered them together and had them stand in their posts. All Judah then brought the tithe of grain, new wine, and oil into the storehouses. In charge of the storehouses, I appointed Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pediah of the Levites. And in addition to them was Hanan the son of Zakur and the son of Mataniah, for they were counted as faithful, and it was their task to apportion everything to their relatives. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out my loving kindness, which I have shown for the house of my God and its responsibilities. In those days, I, I saw Judah, I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys, as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. And they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And so I testified against them on the day they sold food. Also, men of Tyre were living who brought in fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem." Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you're doing, even profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do the same so our God brought on us and on this city all this calamity? Yet you are adding to his anger on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Now it happened that just as it grew dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I said the word, and the doors were shut. Then I said that they should not open them until after the Sabbath. Then I had some of the young men stand at the gates so that no load would enter on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the traders and merchants of every kind of merchandise spent the night outside Jerusalem. And then I warned them and said, why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will send forth my hand against you. But from that time, they did not come on the Sabbath. And I said to the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and come as gatekeepers to keep the Sabbath day holy. For this also remember me, O oh my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. Verse 23. In those days I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but only the tongue of his own people. 
So I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God. You shall not give up your daughters to their sons, nor take up their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God, and God gave him to be king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Do we then hear about you that you have done all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? And even one of the sons of Joeda, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. So I made him flee away from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood of the Levites and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from every foreign and ensured that the responsibilities stood for the priests and the Levites, each in his work. And I arranged for the supply of wood at fixed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for good. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning uh, thankful for this opportunity that we can gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ and, and study your word. Lord, we pray as we read about how Nehemiah interacts with the people here that we, we can not only understand what it meant to the original audience, but also uh, pull out application for us today. Lord, your word is true uh, then as it is now, and there's so much there for us to learn and know, Lord. We're going to pray for those that couldn't be with us today. There's uh, more illness and sickness circulating through our communities. So we pray for rest and recuperation uh, for those uh, folks, Lord. We just pray today uh, that in all that we do, that we would glorify and honor you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So continuing on the lows here, um, the first thing that we see uh, as we jump into this next section is that uh, they're not faithfully giving to support uh, God's work. And so uh, verses four through nine, we, we, and I mentioned earlier that Tobiah was, was using this as he uh, saw fit. They weren't uh, holding the, the storage place for all of the supplies and goods that the temple workers needed. And so it should be no surprise that when we come to this passage, that this happens. I also came to know that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. There's no place to put them, right? So the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his own field, and so I contended against the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And then I gathered them together, had them stand in their posts, and then all of Judah brought the tithes again. So the storage room was forsaken. This is what's happening. And now they're not collecting the goods for the church workers 
and now they have to flee to get food and to be able to survive. And so the ripple effect happens. They leave. Now the church work isn't happening. The things in the temple aren't happening. And so uh, Nehemiah comes back and sees this. And as we talked about uh, with the high, he takes immediate uh, corrective action. I like this one quote from, from a commentator that said, when the spiritual life of leaders diminishes because of sin or carelessness, God's provision for his work also decreases. And so as we look at how Nehemiah responds here, we should see that it's an appropriate reprimand that he takes with those in charge. These are people that, that he appointed to do uh, these things, and they weren't doing it according to not only what he told them to do, but what the Word of God clearly instructs uh, that their foundation is based on. And so this spiritual neglect leads to physical neglect. The spiritual failures influences the people from the leadership on down. We might recall that when Nehemiah first returns to Jerusalem, that his concern is, is much more than just rebuilding the wall. If we flipped back to chapter 1 and, and looked at what he says here when he finds out about the state of Jerusalem. So he asks, the remnant, he asks about the state of Jerusalem. The remnant there in the province who remain from the captivity are in great calamity and reproach. So disgrace or humiliation. So it wasn't just about the rebuilding of the physical structure. It was about the reproach that the people of God had now uh, come under. So it was to restore them uh, in their proper relationship to, to Yahweh. Numbers 18.21, if we looked at that, clearly states that the tithes of Israel should be brought and given to the Levites for their service. In the commitment service and, and that we read about at the end of chapter 9 and into chapter 10, uh, Nehemiah and the people commit to bring the tithes so that they will not, quote, neglect the house of our God. And then not long ago in chapter 12, verse 44, it says, On that day men were also appointed over the chambers uh, for the stores, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes, to gather them in from the fields of the cities, the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and Levites who served. And so Nehemiah sets this in motion. He leaves to go back to Persia, and he comes back, and he finds that the leaders have been neglecting what it is that they're supposed to do. And, and, mean, and the people follow the leadership. They're neglecting to faithfully give support to the house of God. And that's a sign, again, of this spiritual drift away from their devotion to God, or what the Old Testament would call holiness. They're, they're drifting away from it. Now, again, I mentioned we're not sure how long Nehemiah went back to Persia, but it's, it's really inconsequential when we think about it. Isn't it amazing how quickly things can change for good or for bad? 
and think about the celebration in chapter 12. They're coming back under uh, God's law, God's covenant, and he puts people in charge to carry this out. And then he comes back and he sees all of this stuff falling apart, just in a blink of an eye in a lot of ways. I heard a saying uh, many years ago that said, yesterday's victories do not suffice for today's challenges. Have you heard that before? You see, the enemies of our faith, the world, Satan, and our own sinful nature are always going to press against us. They're attempting to destroy what God has put in place, what he's put on our hearts, what he's equipped us to do. And no matter how many wonderful things are in our past, we can't rest on that. We have to keep working. And we have to be ready to rise to these various challenges and occasions like we see here that they didn't do. You might recall chapter 6 of Ephesians where Paul talks about putting on the full armor of God. It's for these very things. We think that we can do it on our own. We think that we know the way, and yet we lose our way so quickly. John says in 1 John 2.16, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride constantly seek to dismantle what the Lord has done and is doing in our lives. See, the life of faith is marked by a humility that drives us to God's word, and it should drive us down on our knees like we see so many times in these two books. It should drive us to our knees in prayer. What they lost sight of, whether it was because Nehemiah went away or not, but they've got a history of it, what they lost sight of was that they're totally and completely dependent upon God. And as they shifted away from that, these problems started to creep back up again. Wanted to make a few observations like I did last week for this one. Sin is never an isolated incident. So in that previous section, what Eliashib did with Tobiah was not in isolation. And as we think of sin in our own lives or in the lives of our community or our church, it's never an isolated incident. Something that I do somehow, some way is going to affect probably my family first, a, a, a fellow brother or sister in Christ, the church, someone in the community, and it's exactly what we see play out here in these first two corrective actions that Nehemiah had to take. The sin that Eliashib committed wasn't isolated. What did it do? It affected the temple workers. And then they started to sin too as they left and didn't collect the goods. Uh, the second application that I would point out here is that the church and the church, so big C, church, like the corporate church, all of us, and the church, Lake Superior Christian Church, doesn't move forward without the support of the body of Christ, without the support of the people of God. 
the temple work here came to a halt because at some point in time, they ran out of supplies to keep doing what they were supposed to be doing. They couldn't just snap their fingers and make it happen. And so the temple shut down. And for them, that means that God's not working. That means uh, they're back into that stage of reproach that Nehemiah talked about at the beginning of the book. It doesn't work if the people of God aren't coming together and contributing. For us, it's exactly like what that sounds like. This building, uh, these things that we have, the, the learning center, people watching the kids, none of this exists without the people of God doing the work. You've probably heard a pastor say or read somewhere, uh, time, talent, and treasure. The people of God giving up those things or a combination of those things. Time to help build a building. Time to help serve. Maybe you've got a talent of some kind that can be uh, useful at the church. I know Cindy was just talking to me about the need for volunteers in different places. And of course, a treasure. And this is an uncomfortable topic to talk about a lot of times in church because we don't want to talk about our money. We can talk about anything else but money and, I guess, politics a lot of time, right? Don't talk about my money. Well, that's where we get it wrong right off the bat. My. It's not my money. It's what God has blessed us with. And this isn't some ploy for money. If you're not giving, sure, I want you to contribute to the church that's pouring into you if we are pouring into you, but start giving somewhere. Find a Christian organization in this town or someplace that's uh, taking the gospel out and start giving to those causes. It's an important thing. It's an important thing for your heart. And I'm not going to tell you that you're going to get that money back or it's going to come back tenfold or any of that baloney if you hear that in a church run. Giving and sacrificing is about your heart. Whether that's money, time, talent, or whatever. And that's what's lacking here. And, and we lack that in the churches today. Why? Because our sin gets in the way of God's work. So look what happens in this passage. They give this storeroom over, they stop collecting, the people go back, God's work stops in the temple. Sin works in the same way with us in the church. We get in our own way and God's work stops. And a lot of that's self-inflicted. Church leadership, churches, individual Christians, we get in our own way and we get in the way of the work of God. I said last week that what we want to do is have our big ideas and our agendas and then ask God to come along with us for the ride instead of the reverse, which is to recognize how God is moving in an individual life and in the body, uh, like a church or in our community, see how he's working and then jump on board with him and how he's working in people and in communities. I'm not going to spend much time on these next two because I've kind of already talked about it, but it really shows in this passage that we just read a courage in conflict. So Nehemiah could have been passive, and he wasn't. He took immediate corrective action. 
And then what response do we see? What we're, how do we respond a lot of times with correction or conflict? I'm going to guess the default for most of us is to get defensive, even if it's mostly true. What we see in this passage and what we see in all four instances really is this humble reaction, a humbleness in the reprimand, in the correction. It's an acknowledgement of, yes, we did that wrong, or yes, I did that wrong. How do we move forward from here? So there's a humility in taking that correction. Again, leaders lead here. Nehemiah could have come back and said, ah, there they go again. I'm not doing this again. I'm going to bail. And yet that's not what leaders do. Leaders don't bail. Not real leaders. I want you to think of instances in your life, maybe your family, a workplace, a church, where when things got tough, leaders bailed. A husband or wife bailed because finances got tight or there was some other thing going on. The church changed or there was an uprising and the, and the leadership bails rather than banding together in unity. Paul talks about in Ephesians a lot. And what happens? When leaders don't lead, things fall apart. God has gifted some for leadership and some for all of these different gifts, but leaders need to lead, especially in the face of adversity, and that's what we see Nehemiah do. And finally here, and this would apply to this whole entire section, corporately and personally, our highest priority, certainly one of the highest priorities in our life should be devotion to God's holy word. And so if we made a priority list of what's happening here, giving to the church workers, giving to the temple, giving to the ministry, took a back seat to other things, whatever Tobiah was doing with this storeroom. And that had a ripple effect on the rest of the church workers. And so they put different priorities of their life in the way of God's work in the temple. And I think if we evaluate ourselves, it's going to be really easy for us to see places in our lives where we put a personal priority in front of doing God's work. That doesn't mean that that thing is inherently a bad thing. It just means that the priority is wrong. And as we're talking about uh, giving and all of that stuff with this particular section, a really easy way to take stock of where things are with how, how generous we are, how giving to God's work is to look at our calendars and our checkbooks. People come in for financial counseling, and I sit down, and, and of course, there's like a half an hour of why this and why that. And then I, I usually start with a very basic question, what's coming in and what's going out in terms of money? Almost exclusively, I have no idea. Could it be that you're in financial trouble because you don't know what's coming in and what's going out? The first place to start would be to see 
what money do I have coming in and what's going out? So a lot of times we send them away for two weeks, send them away for four weeks with a pad of paper and a pencil and write down every single penny that they spend. And you wouldn't believe how eye-opening that is for most people. Stopping at the gas station and spending seven bucks a day on a Snickers and a whatever times 20. They had no idea they were spending that. It's a priority thing. If we look at our calendars and we look at our checkbooks, we'll see what our priorities are. And what we see here is that our priority should be devotion to God's word. Next, we see uh, not keeping holy uh, what God has made holy. So verses uh, 15 through 22 are talking about the Sabbath, and I'm looking at my time here, so I'm not going to read this again since we read it already, but it's talking about the Sabbath. All right, the Sabbath was a very important thing uh, to Old Testament Jews, and I want to read a couple scriptures just to anchor that so we have an understanding of how important this was. Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of Yahweh your God. In it you shall do, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male or your female slave, or your cattle or your sojourner who is in within your gates. So no work. For in six days, excuse me, Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Of course, that's a calling back to Genesis 1. Leviticus 23.3 says, For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is the Sabbath to Yahweh in all your places of habitation. And we see it again in Ezekiel. And I also gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness, and they did not walk in my statutes, and they rejected my judgments, which if a man does them, he will live by them. My Sabbaths they greatly profaned. Then I said, I will pour out my wrath on them in the wilderness to completely destroy them. But I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of nations where whose sight I had brought them out. You see that theme of reproach there, but also uh, the middle part there sounds a lot like what we've been dealing with in Nehemiah here. They, they, they did not walk in my statutes. They rejected my judgments. And so what's, not, what's happening here is that they're not keeping holy what God had made holy. You see, the, for the law and the prophets declare how essential it is to Yahweh that Israel remember uh, the Sabbath and keep it holy. For them, it was a day to totally and completely uh, stop work. They would get things ready the day before so that they didn't have to do things. This is Old Testament. And so that's what it meant uh, for the original audience. But we should talk about the Sabbath and what it means for us today in the New Covenant. I've said this before, but it's worth repeating. The New Testament, Christ, when he comes and establishes his, his kingdom, doesn't make things 
easier. We've got this false notion that once I accept Christ that it's easy street. The reality is, as we look at things that happen in the Old Testament and we compare them to things that Jesus says in the New Testament, Jesus is upping the ante. In some ways, he's making things harder, uh, more complete uh, with giving, for instance, since we were just on that topic. The Old Testament is full of tithes, tithes for this, tithes for that. And the New Testament talks about giving sacrificially, being glad in one's heart when we give. It's not tied to a specific number. The reality is for the Sabbath, where the Old Testament Jews were setting aside one day completely devoted to God and removing themselves from work, we find our Sabbath in Christ. Hebrews talks about this. We don't just find ourselves in Christ on one day that we set aside for some special purpose. We're in Christ every day, all day. So in a sense, our Sabbath is found in Christ, which means that we're supposed to be pursuing this all the time. Back to that devotion piece. Our lives should be uh, devoted to Christ. One more. This was kind of the little fun part that we read. Not rejecting anything that would damage our witness. So this gets uh, a little heated in the passage here. Verse 25, Nehemiah corrects them pretty firmly. So I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God. That sounds very Christ-like, doesn't it? What are we supposed to do with that? Because it seems way over the top. It doesn't seem like that's something that, that, that Christ would do. That doesn't seem like a, a New Testament-type teaching. If you go back and read 1 Kings 11 and then 2 Kings chapter 22, you'll see the basis for this foreign wives thing. And it's something that we've talked about several times as we've worked through this book. It had nothing to do with race or being foreign. It had to do with their devotion shifting from Yahweh to the other gods. As they married these foreigners, their gods would generally push aside Yahweh and they would take on the religion of those that they were marrying. And so by that, they're not keeping Yahweh as the one and only God that they're worshiping. But Noah's, or I'm sorry, Nehemiah's anger and frustration spill out here in a way that might seem a little strange to us. But he is completely and totally put off by the people continuing to sin. This is about Israel's future. They had just signed their names on a document saying that we're going to live under your covenant. They had people like this stand, the priests stand and deliver the word of God. And the people say, yep, I want to be a part of that. 
And here they are again being unfaithful to God, right back in the same trap, right back in the same pit, right back in the same sin. The people are their own worst enemies. They're disregarding God's law, so much so that they're impacting their children, it goes on to say. Their children can't speak the language of God. And so what do you think the next generation is going to be? If only half of them can do it, then it's going to fall off completely probably by the second generation. Not rejecting anything that would damage our witness. What are some things in our life that should anger us to this degree? contended with them, cursed them, struck some of them, and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God. Can you think of things? Because we get fired up over a lot of dumb things, but we don't get fired up over, over things that we probably should, things that would damage our witness as individual believers or as a church, big C, little c. I think that's something that we should wrestle with this week. As this kind of sits, we've had a couple sermons like this that were like, eh, man, I don't like that part. Next week, we're going to talk about this. We see in Matthew 25, 23, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. What we see Nehemiah do here where he says, remember me, oh my God, is kind of Nehemiah's way of saying, God, what I want to hear at the end of my life is well done, good and faithful servant. So I think the main takeaway here is for me and, and for us is that even when we recommit, when they recommitted, First Peter 5 talks about there's a, there's a roaring lion there just lurk, lurking to devour us, waiting for us to stumble. That's exactly what happens here. They celebrate, they recommit. Somebody stops paying attention, Nehemiah. The leadership that they have wasn't very good and right back into the same sin and the same pit that they fell in. We have that obligation to one another. I have that obligation as your pastor to call that out if I see those things. We have that obligation as husbands and wives. We have that obligation as brothers and sisters in Christ to not let ourselves keep falling back into those same pits. And so when we get to the end of our lives, what we'll talk about next week, we get to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what Nehemiah wanted all the way through. You remember there's like six or seven of these statements as he's trying to govern the people, trying to bring the people back under the word, under the law, and under the covenant. And that's for next week as we close this study. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for today and for this time to gather. 
God, I pray that this chapter as we close is a, is a kind of a final reminder in this study that we need to stay vigilant, that no matter how far that we think we've come in our lives, in our spiritual walk, that, that we have to stay vigilant, that we've got an enemy that's working against us. A lot of times it's ourselves, but it can come from the outside as well, Lord. Pray that we're grounded in your word and in relationship with other brothers and sisters in Christ so that we can stay uh, rooted and we can stay accountable so that we don't fall into the same holes that we fell in six months ago, five years ago. God, as your children, what we want at the end of our lives is to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, Lord. So our lives and everything that we do should show devotion to you to glorify and honor you so that that's what we hear at the end of our lives. And it's your son's name that we pray. Amen. Be sure to stay up to date with the latest information at lscc.tv. While you're there, click on Connect to find a way to get more involved at LSCC or learn about how to put your talents to work in one of our ministries. If you've been blessed by this podcast and call LSCC home, Consider supporting LSCC financially by going to lscc.tv slash give. Big or small, every gift helps us in our mission to love God, love others, and be the church in our mission field, near and far. Thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to having you back next week.